Let's turn with you now in the New Testament to our sermon text in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are able to open our blind eyes because truly we need them to be opened. And we are thankful, Lord, that these things were from the very beginning utterly certain. And Heavenly Father, how we pray indeed that we would receive these things in faith and joy. How indeed we pray, Lord, that we would see your goodness in the tapestry of the work of redemption. And how not only the resurrection, but even the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only these events of Christ himself, but that they should be proclaimed to all the ends of the earth, are all written in your book and all utterly certain. We pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now this morning we consider Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. Now, after the return of those two from Emmaus, the Lord has now appeared to the whole group of disciples there in Jerusalem, and they are in disbelief, and so he does for them what he has done for the Emmaus pair in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understandings that they might comprehend the scriptures, just as he had done for the, the two men on their way and at, at Emmaus. He points them to the means of grace, and he opens their understanding to receive what's in the means of grace, the word of God in this case, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in what seems to be Christ's summary statement of his explanation of all of it, we understand that so many times in Scripture it is summarizing the conversation that happened. But this summary statement in verse 46, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remissions of, remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Notice that word, Necessary. And that's the key to understanding all of this. That's the key to understanding Luke's point under the the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit, all this section and all Christ's point of what he's trying to explain to them. Because our tendency as human beings who cannot see the, the totality of things is to imagine that things happen almost by random, by chance. We actually believe that there is such a thing as randomness. It's not true. Randomness cannot exist in a universe that is governed by an almighty, omniscient God. 
There is no true randomness. There is apparent randomness only because we are ignorant. God is utterly in control of each and everything, and every last one of these things has been known from all eternity. And he knows that what is useful for us and what is needful for us to know is is that it was necessary. Our tendency is even when something bad happens, when some bad news reaches us, we want to know that it was not meaningless, that at least some aspect of it, some part of it somehow, was useful, can be connected up with the, the larger picture of God's goodness to us. Somehow, just one little bit of it. That'll do. But beloved... Jesus' point is that all of it, every aspect of what has happened, is utterly necessary. It's impossible. His suffering, his death, his resurrection, all of these things were completely necessary. Impossible that it should be otherwise. And in fact, beyond that, the thing that now was going to pertain particularly to them, the work of preaching that message, the work of spreading that message to all the nations of the world, that too was utterly necessary. How important for us to understand these things. We live in a world of great prosperity. God has been very good to us in so many ways. And yet we live in anxiety. Every little hint of anything that might be considered some kind of bad news, we are t- the first thing that comes to our mind is, is disaster. And we are tempted to be very anxious, as if God is not in control, as if God is not able to help his people, as if God is not able to carry on his great work of redemption, of upholding and blessing his people and bringing them to perfection. Friends, the word to those disciples and the word to us is that these things are necessary. They have to happen. All of it. So the title this morning is Things That Are Necessary. There are four points. Christ's word to be fulfilled, and all the points begin with Christ. Christ to suffer, Christ to rise, and Christ to be preached begin with Christ's word to be fulfilled. In verse 44, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He begins his explanation with reference to the words which he had spoken to them directly in the course of their time with him. The words which I spoke to you when I was still with you. And I need not say that Christ cannot lie. He's the Son of God, and he cannot be in error. Neither of those things could be. Either every word that he says must be fulfilled, or else it's possible for him to lie or to be in error, and, and, and that's impossible. And so every word which he utters to them must certainly be found true. And so whether they're interpretations of Scripture, which he's speaking of in particular, the things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning, and he had in the past mentioned that. Or new prophecies, such as what we had in Luke 18. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now which one specifically are you speaking of, Lord? For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. They will scourge him and kill him. 
And the third day he will rise again. He thinks. And these things which he said to them must in the end be proven to be true. Now, whatever we can say about Christ speaking to them directly in the, in the midst of his ministry also apply to the whole word of God. For Christ is himself the word of God. Let us not forget about it. In the Trinity, there are three persons. And he is the second person, the Son of God. And we know from John chapter 1 that he is also one of his titles, one of his attributes, his identity is to be the Word of God. And so therefore he is the author, through the Spirit, of the entire Scripture. And what do we know about God's Word? We know that it's true. We know that it always works. We know what it says in Isaiah 55, and starting in verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, which is the problem. Because just because God's ways are so much higher than ours, we tend to disbelieve it because we can't make it, make it work in our, our puny little minds at the moment. And he begins his statement by saying, my ways are higher than yours. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, verse 10. But as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. His word may appear to us to be impossible. It may appear to us to be irrational or some, some part of it doesn't fully make sense to us. But God says that's the nature of me being God and you being fallible and finite human beings. But he wants to assure us that each and everything that he says is true and will surely accomplish what he intends for it to accomplish. And so it says in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of God, friends. And therefore, it is impossible that any of these things should fail, any of these things should ever be found to be untrue. And so Christ begins his explanation and roots his explanation purely and solely upon that these things are written. These things have been prophesied. It is part of the word of God. And therefore, they had to happen. So in verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it is necessary. The necessity is, is rooted in it having been written in the Word of God. Well, it's absolutely necessary that Christ's Word would be fulfilled. And secondly, it's also necessary that Christ suffer. He said, these are the words which I spoke to you. And what are these words? In verse 46, he said, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. For Christ to suffer. 
That was the thing you see that they balked at. That was the thing that had come that had hit their their understanding at 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 edges. That was the thing that their mind rejected because it did not make sense to them that the the king of Israel should suffer. And as they beheld him being crucified, it did not make sense. It did not register to them. That was not the narrative that they had imagined in their own minds. And they're still trying to figure it. They're still trying to get their minds around, what what happened here? It seemed like a failure. It seemed like something that was not part of the story. And he has to say no. No, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Not by virtue of being part of the word of God. Uh, again, we can start there. It is just because it's been prophesied. And if you believe the word, if nothing else, you have to understand that Christ's suffering was part and parcel of Old Testament prophecy. And therefore, it had to be fulfilled. Where in the word do we find it? Well, in Isaiah, like Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Or Isaiah 53. It's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. By the way, there's an element even of the disciples' lack of comprehension that is prophesied even in Isaiah 53. We reckoned him smitten by God and afflicted. Not they, we reckoned that. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed, verse 7, and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And on and on it goes, detailing all the aspects of Christ's suffering. It had to happen because the word of God had opened his mouth to declare it to be. Christ himself had declared these things to be. And also in the Psalms, just as a, as a sample, because it, it, it takes the whole Word of God and, and sort of summarizes it as Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the Psalms and the prophets. Well, the Psalms, Psalm 22, verse 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. These things were written. These things were written in Moses. Where in Moses? How about Genesis chapter 3? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. How about in the ceremonial law, every part of which had to do with the Lamb of God that needed to be slain, particularly in the Passover as we've been considering in Exodus. All that was to have its fulfillment in Christ. And it was utterly necessary that these things would, would come in the end. But why beyond that? Okay, so the Word of God says it, and that's enough. That's necessity enough. But is there anything beyond it? Is there any larger connection for why Christ had to suffer? Why in terms of theology? Well, there's a good reason there. It's a very, very good reason there. And I'll just turn again to Zechariah chapter 3, because it's a picture. And some of us prefer to have word pictures and illustrations in this way. And this is not one I made up. This is the Lord's 
own illustration, the Lord's own word in Zechariah 3.1. And then he showed me Joshua the high priest who stood for the word of God, or sorry, stood for the, the people of God. He was, he was a representative of all of God's people. Now standing in the courts of heaven before a holy God, standing before the angel of the Lord. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second person of the Godhead. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord, meaning the angel, big A, angel, Christ himself, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What are you talking about, Lord? Well, verse 3 tells us, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. That, friends, is a problem, a major problem. Joshua, who represents all of God's people for all time, is clothed in filthy garments. Now, friends, we have no dress code here. I, as a minister, try to to dress professionally. But you know what? None of us would show up in church in filthy garments. None of us would choose to do that. Why? Because we understand that there's an element by which we are standing before a holy God. But, friends, how much more so in reality if, in fact, what you're wearing is a picture of what is inside. And, and what, how much worse than if what is inside is not pure and good, but filthy, filled with, with just crawling with filth of sin. And friends, this is a problem that Satan was pointing out. You see him? He's filthy. And you're holy. That means you have to put, him, put an end to him. You're going to have to judge him and all those people. You're going to have to go straight to hell just like I am. But he doesn't even get out the, the, the substance of his accusation because he says, no, that's a brand plucked from the fire, friend. You're going there, but they're not. Because I'm going to take off that filthy robe. And we see that that's exactly what he does in Zechariah 3. Take away the filthy garment from him, and I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. But the unfinished part of that story, and the unfinished part of the whole ceremonial law, and the unfinished part of all the law and the prophets and the Psalms, is what happens to that dirty robe. Christ picks it up and puts it on himself. Now he's the high priest standing in for all the people, and he's wearing a filthy robe. And it's not going to be Joshua as a representative of the, of the people being judged and, in fact, enduring the pain of hell for those sins. It's going to be him, the Lord Jesus. He had to suffer. He had to die in order to pay for that filth, the sins of all of God's people. Why? Because he loves us. Because John ten fifteen says that the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's his prerogative. That's his delight. That's his honor. That's the way he loves his people, by laying down his life for the sheep. That's why he had to suffer. He had to. It was necessary. So it's necessary for Christ's word to be fulfilled. It is necessary for Christ to suffer. 
And friends, it is necessary for Christ to rise because that was not the end of the story. As much as no doubt Satan was hoping at least that would work. Well, good. How much better? Okay, so Joshua isn't going to be judged and sent to hell. Great. Christ himself is. There he is in the grave. I've done it. That's not going to work either. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It was necessary. We have seen the words of Christ many times. Again, as much as Christ said that he was going to have to suffer, he also made it very clear he was going to rise. And let me say, it was even in the Old Testament. He refers to it. Like maybe even Jonah. Jonah, it was necessary. He was three days in the belly of the great fish. But that resurrection was portrayed. He's coming out of it. That, that was in Joseph. We were talking about that earlier. Joseph is a picture of Christ, typologically. And we see him, his death, as it were, and burial in the ground, and his resurrection. But the Lord says so very plainly in the Gospel of Luke more than once. Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Luke 13.32, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Luke 18.33, They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Of course, earlier on in this chapter, that fact is emphasized. The report, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. If they knew nothing else, I mean, if they'd forgotten everything, it would seem like that much would be ringing in their ears. It's not just only merely that Christ had to suffer. It is also equally necessary that he must rise. But why? Again, by virtue of being prophesied. If nothing else, because he said so, we know it has to happen. But why was it necessary? We understand theologically why it was necessary that Christ should die for the sins of his people. But why then should he rise? What was necessary about that? Because, friends, death could not hold him. We know that the wages of sin are death. And we're used to death. We become very used to death. But we must remember that there is only death because there is sin. It is not a necessary aspect of our universe. God did not create it thus. God created a good universe and a good Adam and Eve with no sin and no death. No death at all. We look at these things that are necessary. That wasn't originally necessary. But when sin entered, then death comes with it. But where there is no sin, there can be no death, friends. And Christ, so he was clothed with our sins like a filthy garment, the wrath of God had washed them clean by the end. And there was no legal, no moral, no theological basis for him to remain in the grave any longer than the bare minimum necessary to fulfill prophecy and to establish the reality that he had in fact died. Death could not hold him because there's no sin left. It was gone. And in a related way, there had to be a demonstration that this sacrifice was in fact acceptable. How do we know it works? We have the words in John 19.30, Tetelestai, it is finished. The declaration of the word of God. So we know it's true. But then we have the confirmation in fact. We know that he really was finished with the job. This seemingly impossible job. 
The one that was so impossible that the Apostle John in Revelation weeps because no one was found worthy. No one was found able to, to do this work. How do we know that he's done? Only by him rising from the dead. That was the only way that we could know that. And he was. It was necessary for that to happen. And finally, it's necessary because we must see the first fruits of the harvest that is to come, the harvest which we ourselves are part of. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. Meaning that what happened to him is what's going to happen to us soon enough. What's happened to him is what's going to happen to our departed in Christ, our relatives and loved ones. We witness him rising again from the dead in glorified form, and so it shall be with all who are united with Christ. We already know it's going to happen. It has to happen because it's been demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. It's necessary. He had to rise. Fourthly and finally, there's one more thing Christ's to be preached. In this list of things, in the summary in verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, this is part of that list of what is necessary, what must happen. Here we have a summary of the Great Commission that we we have in other places. And this is the summary of the Great Commission that we find in Luke. And what's the difference between this and the fuller statement we have in Matthew 28? Well, here in Luke, the emphasis is not on the means by which it's going to happen. And incidentally, those means, again, are the ordinary means of grace as empowered by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why he says this is going to, you know, you want to know how it's going to happen? It's going to happen as you go out and preach, you go out and baptize, and as I make it happen because I have all authority in heaven and earth. End of story. But in Luke, the emphasis is that it must happen. Not how it's going to happen, but simply that it must happen. Along with these other things, along with Christ's suffering and along with his resurrection, this too must happen in fulfillment of Scripture and in Christ's own words. Beloved, I want us to see how all these things are of a part. They're all of a piece. Christ did have to die But in dying and atoning sacrifice for us, he also had to rise. It's impossible that that couldn't happen. And in his rising again from the dead, it is also impossible that it should not be preached. We know, remember those words in the triumphal entry. If these were quiet, the stones themselves would cry out. The king coming to his own city was impossible, but that it should be proclaimed. And friends, the resurrection is vastly more important than that vastly more important and it is utterly impossible that it should not be proclaimed throughout all the world and finally I would and, and beyond that I would say the whole point of the atonement is the salvation the redemption of God's people and it is impossible that it should fail the substance of that message is summarized the message that is now going to be proclaimed is summarized in the terms Repentance and remission of sin. That, that's what's going to be proclaimed throughout all the earth. 
repentance. Matthew Henry says this, The great gospel duty of repentance must be pressed upon the children of men. Repentance for sin must be preached in Christ's name and by His authority. All men everywhere must be called and commanded to repent as it is in Acts. Go and tell all people that the God who made them, the Lord who bought them, and expects and requires that immediately upon this notice given, they turn from the worship of the gods they have made to the worship of the God that made them. Not only so, but from serving the interests of the world and the flesh, they must turn to the service of God in Christ, must mortify all sinful habits and forsake all sinful practices. Their hearts and lives must be changed and they must be universally renewed and reformed. A message must be proclaimed. Friends, what does it mean then when, when we have some who would say we don't have to preach repentance? It means they're not doing what God called them to do, the thing that must happen. So repentance must be preached and also remission of sin must be preached. In other words, the good news that we can be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Part and parcel of it. Christ died. How is it possible that a sinless one died? The only way that's possible is that our sins were laid upon him. And how is it possible that someone who is dead has risen again the third day? No one came and rose him. He, of his own accord, took, took up his life again. Why? Because his sins were all paid for. And therefore, a necessary concomitant of all that is there is remission of sins. That is a good news that we can be saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's what's being preached. It's so good, it's so wonderful, it's sometimes hard to believe. But it's true. And let me say, it is in His name. Because there's no other name given in heaven by which we must be saved. It's the only name. And it's not merely disembodied doctrines that are preached. I don't just say grace and say that's what you need to believe, but you believe on the risen Lord Jesus Christ in whose name these things are being preached. Now, beloved, let me just say as a foreshadowing to watch for these things being fulfilled as in God's time we move on into the the, the book of Acts because this is exactly what happens. As the apostles go forward and preach the message that was given to them, it is about repentance and about the remission of sins, predicated on the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what, friends? This message that must be preached, it was preached in Acts, and it is being preached even now. Talk about fulfilled prophecy. You understand that each and every time this message, even right now before your eyes, that prophecy is being fulfilled. It must be preached throughout the world. That's what this work that we're all involved in, that's what this is a part and parcel of. I'll say more about that in the application. Well, that's what we now turn to because I've mentioned all the, these things are necessary. That Christ's word to, is to be fulfilled, Christ to suffer, Christ to rise, Christ to be preached. These are things that are necessary. Let's apply them now. First of all, there's good news in this, really good news. Repentance must be preached, and so I say to you, repent. Repent. Like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if you know that. If you don't, you probably ought to. You have, you have to feel the weight 
of the, the burden, the weight of the sins pulling you down into hell. You have to see Mount Sinai, which is that great picture of the moral law of God threatening to fall down on your head. You have to realize that you live in the city of destruction in order to leave it, in order to come to Christ. And for so many, not just me, I know it's my own personal testimony, but for so many of you, you can testify that it was not until you understood the bad news, it was not until you came to a conviction of sins that you were ever able in a position to receive the good news of salvation through faith in Christ. And so I say repent. And remind us all that that repentance, yes, it's once and for all in a definitive way as we come to Christ. But that repentance is an ongoing work. It's one of the, one of the 95 theses of Luther. It's reminding us that it is an ongoing thing in the life of the Christian that we must repent from our sins. And of course, we don't stop there. Because the other thing that must be preached, and I dare not disobey that, is that remission of sins must be preached. And I could come to you like Jonah himself, having no, no goodwill in my heart whatsoever. Jonah just wished ill to them. And yet, the message had to be preached. It was a message, actually, of just mere destruction, but implicit in it. Implicit in it was the possibility of salvation. And they received it to their salvation. Now, let's just take a moment and think of what if. What if there was a proclamation of remission of sins, like it says so here in the text? Just a proclamation of remission of sins. That sounds like good news. We have some pastoral letters to distribute after this. And what if written in in there, instead of some trivial details of the things that are going on here, what if they said, Dear sinner, there is full remission of sins in Christ. How about that? You'd say, no, that's, that's real good news. That's better than the gospel you've been preaching, brother. Well, friends, it's true. That is the gospel that I present to you this morning. If I haven't said so clearly before, that, that's it. That is precisely the gospel. Christ is dead and is risen for you. Now, it does no good if you say, if you take that letter that I've given you and you wrinkle it up and I say, I don't believe that. How could it do you any good? But if you say, oh, this is great news, and receive it as good news, and believe it, wow, there is remission of sins in Christ. Well, friend, you've just done it. You have just become a Christian. You have believed the gospel, and you're by definition saved and have all the benefits that he offers. That's all there is to it. That's just how good the the good news is. Remission of sins. That's what I preach to you. Secondly, I think this applies to us with regard to our prayers. If this is true, regarding the necessity of God's word being fulfilled, what does that mean for us in our prayers? It means that we should always be looking around for some aspect of God's word, some even implication of God's word, to grasp a hold of and to present in our prayers as something we know must happen. 
Why bother with things that we don't know if it's going to happen this way or not? Our focus should be on the things we know must be true and connecting up our lives, connecting up our events to that larger picture of things that must be true. Sometimes we don't notice them because we're not very good at noticing these details. Sometimes we don't see how it connects up, but we need to develop that skill. Because in the end, the objective is to come to the Lord, praying these kind of promises and coming in full expectation of the reality of the certainty of these things. Notice Solomon's prayer, the dedication of the temple. He could have just said, Lord, we've done our best to make a nice building uh, and please bless it. But instead, he says in in 2 Chronicles 6.16, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way and walk in my laws, you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. If only our prayers were like that. That God would give us the wisdom and the knowledge to connect them up that we say, let your word be true, Lord, and all that you promised be true. That's the way we should pray. And thirdly and finally, this is the way we should think about our mission. Because what is yet to be fulfilled in this? We, we sometimes make fun a little bit of the disciples and saying, you know, what's on the list, guys? He's going to be arrested. He, he was betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be, he's going to be derisively treated. He's going to be beaten. He's going to die. What's next? His resurrection. They should have been expecting it. But there's one more thing. Actually, there's two more things. One more thing is that the message be preached throughout all the world. That's equally necessary to all the rest of it. And friends, we can be sure that it will happen. There's only one text in Scripture that contains the words, the end will come. Do you know what they are? It's Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. These are exciting times we live in. Let me say this. The people of God had absolutely nothing to do with Christ's suffering except to perpetrate it. And the people of God had absolutely nothing to do with his resurrection except to disbelieve it. But as for the preaching, we're very much part of that. We have the honor and privilege of having everything to do with that. And beloved, there's no uncertainty in this business, this work of the kingdom. No uncertainty at all. Success is a foregone conclusion. We know it's going to happen. And in our going forth in these things, we should go with the the God-confidence, not the self-confidence, knowing the certainty of the success of that mission. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, the name you proclaim to us is one of grace and mercy, and we must believe it. Truly, Lord, we sometimes fail to grasp the true significance and the the depth, the breadth and the height of your love for us that is reflected in the good news of the gospel. And Lord, we want to make it smaller than what it is, but Lord, it is the best news that could be imagined. There is remission of sins that's proclaimed. Truly, Lord, we 
know that we have to repent. We understand that unless we have some need, we will not receive any good news to address our situation. Heavenly Father, as those clothed in filthy garments, we are thankful that Christ took them upon himself. Lord, how we pray that all here might believe the good news that is preached, both that repentance and remission of sins are freely available in Christ. Lord, how we pray that we ourselves, though we are tempted to be anxious, would recognize that even the mission of the church, this proclamation is utterly certain it must happen as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.